and welcome to episode 39 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Greenwald, joined as always by Kyle Kachenko. And today we have a special guest on. Our guest name is Mike Tashir of Reactive Training Systems. Uh, Mike is not only an esteemed power lifter in his own right, but he, like us, uh, is a programming and coaching nerd. Uh, and we're going to discuss programming. Uh, we have a lot of questions for Mike. Um, Mike has a strategy um, called Emerging Strategies that in a way calls into question the top-down approach of periodization and he approaches more from a bottom-up. And and we'll have him explain that, but what it does is it also brings to question the validity of uh, periodization as mm -hmm. we have learned it since its uh, Soviet Union uh, origins. So we're going to start by just talking about perhaps, uh, Mike, if you don't mind, potential faults with periodization and then how recognizing those faults led to uh, your latest uh, understandings and concepts surrounding emerging strategies. Yeah, you know, um, John Kiley does a great job of highlighting some of the uh, limitations of periodization and, and just kind of where a lot of these ideas came from and assumptions that they're built on uh, that may not be valid, you know, and uh, one thing that's rather easy to point at is, is just that we're dealing with a complex system that, you know, by its nature is unpredictable. The human body is, is unpredictable. I mean, think about it from a medical standpoint. We don't know who's going to get cancer. We don't know who's going to have any various uh, medical problem. Uh, we can't predict those things, you know, super far in, in advance, you know. And what we're dealing with from an athletic standpoint is a lot more nuanced than that. And it's a lot more subtle. We want to know, you know, are you going to respond more uh, to sets of five or to sets of three or to this exercise or that exercise? You know, so being able to predict that in any sort of meaningful way is difficult. And being able to predict it long in advance is also um, just really not possible uh, to the to the degree that we need it to be as as practicing strength coaches, you know. So one thing that one thing that I would say these days, emerging strategies is more about being able to justify the training decisions that you're making. You know, one of the questions that people ask all the time uh, when it comes to programming, you know, you're talking, imagine you're talking to, you know, a fellow programming nerd. Lots of people want to know, like, why did you put sixes in this program instead of fives or instead of fours? Like, what drove these decisions? And to a large extent, it's hard to answer those questions because it's like this combination of, intuition and uh, being driven by the system and being driven by the uh, the uh, uh, the patterns that are in play you know but in an emerging strategies 
paradigm, we want to justify those decisions in more detail, you know? Uh, so you mentioned, you mentioned the, the presentation, I think, uh, that I did about emerging strategies. And in the presentation, I, I do go into some, some length about what I would term as problems with, with traditional top-down periodization. And I think those are things to be considered for sure. Um, but then in particular, so, to some degree, I've kind of not so much backed off of that, but tried to focus on something else. And in particular, my criticisms of, of the scientific process as a whole, really, I think the focus is more on having a justified belief in the training decisions that you're making. I think that that's, that's kind of the important direction to go. How do you know that this is the thing that's working? Mm-hmm. Have you read Greg Knuckles' review on the periodization literature? He came to similar conclusions uh, that I forget the gentleman who you quoted a few times in your uh, in your presentation. But just yeah, when he even when when Greg reviewed the literature, he found just the sources were just not reliable, and and you had mentioned the length of the studies. You had mentioned. Um, uh, just again, making a lot of assumptions that even when we add a little bit of what, what is now up to date scientific understanding, they just don't really hold up. So I heard you say in, in this same talk, you know, if something's working, basically we, we keep going with it. And it sounds like we try, you, you try to stick with it long enough to find out and through feedback and a lot of data tracking and analysis, not just what is working, but perhaps why it's working. Um, or if not why it's working, trying to be as educated in your ability to say that this exercise is working versus another. And if something's working, you follow it until it doesn't work anymore. And then when it doesn't work anymore, you perhaps either pivot or you change things up uh, and it's a lot more, not auto-regulative perhaps, but a lot more um, uh, fluid and, and kind of uh, ever evolving based on results rather than a, a, a pre-outlined uh, plan, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, to, to borrow a term from uh, Mladen Jovanovic, uh, I would say it's, it's agile. Um, if you're familiar with the, uh, the management system, um, that is pretty ubiquitous among like software development, or at least they say it's ubiquitous. Uh, I find the implementation a lot of times is, is a little bit spotty, but anyway, um, kind of the, the textbook processes behind, uh, agile planning in a management sense, that's essentially what you're doing in a, in a programming sense as well like you're trying to you're trying to manage your resources uh which would be the athlete's time energy focus uh to solve specific problems and you're doing that with the understanding that you don't have the big picture and the situation is is changing as you're developing and that it's going to change in some fundamentally unpredictable ways 
So it's it's very similar. It's a very similar problem to the problem that agile management tries to solve, you know. But it's just geared geared toward athletics instead of software development. When you're using um, or, or this idea of emerging strategies, do you and this might come later on in the talk as well? Still have kind of a long term plan. Um, whether it's very, really vague or whatever in mind, uh, or do you really just stick to where uh, what's showing and coming out through the program? I, I suppose it depends on what you mean by a long-term plan. So um, it's November right now. Uh, if I have an athlete who's training uh, for the world championships in June, so we're about seven months out from that. You know, um, if you would consider that to be a, a long-term plan, um, there's a, sometimes a skeleton at this point. You know, if I know that they're reliably seven weeks to peak, and if they're seven weeks to peak, then we're going to take two-week pivots. So the whole thing is going to is going to be uh, nine weeks long you know so how many nine week blocks happen between now and then i know that the last for the world championship probably the last two blocks are going to be uh what i would call focused development blocks so these are blocks that are focused on the things that we know will produce results outside of that we can be more exploratory and and so really it's, it's those last two, uh, you know, so let's call it eight weeks just for, just for the sake of round numbers. Say, so say roughly the last four months, uh, you know, so from February on, we want to have fairly focused training, um, in, in this particular athlete's case. Right. So up until then, you know, we can be a lot more fluid. We can say, well, your strength is good. You're in a good spot. Uh, so let's go exploring. Let's try some things that we've wanted to try, some things that seem like good ideas, um, do some things that are different. Maybe we'll learn something useful. Uh, or, hey, your strength's not so good. Maybe we ought to come back a little bit closer to home base so we can get back, make sure that we're at least starting this in a, in a good spot. You know, Now, if you have an athlete that's got a different time to peak, let's say a very short time to peak, uh, three or four weeks. Let's go with four weeks. Um, so then a one week pivot is going to be five weeks. So those last two development cycles are going to take a total of 10 weeks instead of 16, you know, so that, that period, that final period where you're really doing focused development work is going to vary, you know, but I, that's also only going to be if you have two development cycles worth of training that you have good, solid, justified belief in using. You know, if you've got somebody you've worked with for a lot shorter period of, of time, uh, you may not know that much about the athlete, you know, so you, you're going to be exploring until you get to one development cycle out, you know, or, or sometimes, you know, if they're very new and you don't have much information at all to go on, you're just exploring the whole way, you know, and that's part of the, the learning that has to happen between the, the coach and the athlete. So I know that's kind of uh, maybe hard to visualize, 
you know, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of numbers just kind of spoken out loud. So maybe that's not the best way to go about it, but maybe it illustrates well, the point. Maybe we can, yeah. And we can kind of like narrow it down on it. So we, we have heard, um, cause when, when I think developmental, I think beginning of cycle rather than end of cycle. And we've heard say, you know, time to peak and, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Perhaps the, the time to peak, I think, and I might misunderstand this, that is this a time before there's been any functional overreaching? Because it almost sounds like in this exploratory phase, you want to be almost maintaining and not pushing too hard. So I guess if I were to narrow my question, it would be, how do we know the athlete's time to peak? Could it potentially change when you are being exploratory, if you're having any novel stimuli? And then if you can just maybe explain a little bit more about what developmental in those later stages towards competition means to you. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's best if I kind of uh, define some terms and then we can make sure that we're all on the same page with that. So, yeah, so, so some basic, basic ideas, at least as it relates to emerging strategies. The idea is that we're going to basically have two kinds of training cycle. You can have a development cycle, uh, which this is your training. You know, this is uh, training that's intended to develop you as an athlete and make you better. Uh, or you can have what we've termed a, a pivot block. Uh, you can think of it kind of like a deload, um, but deload a lot, of, I find, gives people the impression that it's like an easy week of training. And in some respects, it is. It, it's lower stress. And the stress that you have is geared towards some other things. But the objectives of a pivot are um, to allow you to recover, uh, to resensitize your body to training loads, uh, to improve your durability. So maybe do some things that you have been neglecting uh, in your development cycle. So we find that lots of times things like rows and uh, movements that are not sagittal plane movements and things like that get neglected during development cycles. So we try to include all those things during pivot cycles in the hopes that it makes you a, a more well-rounded, more durable athlete. If I can, if you don't mind me asking here, yeah. so could someone who might not be used to these terms, could they almost associate pivot with GPP and development with more specificity? For a sport, in this case, it would be powerlifting? Yes. Or perhaps any sport? Yes, yes. And it would be specificity toward the sport that you're doing. Now, you would have to keep in mind that when I say specificity, that's a very wide range. You know, yeah. you can... And for a development cycle, you're following athlete response. If you do something and an athlete responds favorably to it, then you use that information, you know, and if you do something and they don't respond favorably to it, then you would probably want to avoid that, you know? Uh, so you're, you're using the information that you get back from the athlete response to inform future training decisions. And the response from the athlete back <laughs> and, and hopefully this isn't too tangential because I think to find these terms is so important. H how are you, and, and this might, it might not even matter, 
discerning between what an athlete perhaps enjoys and reports as feeling good versus actually being beneficial for their outcomes. We look uh, at estimated 1RM as our gauge for athlete response. <clears throat> if, they're, if their estimated 1RM is going up, then we take that as a, as a very strong indicator that they're just getting stronger. Uh, or at least their movement skill is getting better. Their competition results are, if your estimated 1RM is consistently going up, your competition results will go up. If not now, then eventually, you know. So uh, that's what we focus on for sure. So it's it's really not that much about enjoyment. And when I was first implementing this, which, well, hold on, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So <clears throat> sorry, just one second here. Sorry, a little bit of a frog in my throat. <laughs> um, so we have these two types of training. We have development cycles, we have pivot cycles, and they just alternate back and forth. You have development, pivot, development, pivot, development, pivot. That's going to be the general uh, pattern that, you, that you'll use. A development cycle at its core is just one set of training, one microcycle of training that repeats. Now, generally, a microcycle is one training week, although it doesn't have to be. Um, but let's start there. You know, let's say it's it's one week of training that repeats. Same exercises, same reps, same sets, same RPEs. Uh, the load on the bar. Uh, we allow that to fluctuate based on the athlete's strength level so that they are creating the same RPE. The idea is that I want the stress on their body to be the same every week or every every microcycle. You can condense it down so that you're doing two microcycles in a week or stretch it out so that one microcycle actually lasts for two weeks. But, uh, you know, and there's reasons why you would do those things. Uh, but just for simplicity's sake, let's say it's one microcycle per week, and you're just going to repeat that over and over. And during this time, you're monitoring their estimated 1RM. And as long as they're getting better, you just keep repeating it. Eventually, they won't continue to get better forever. You know, we all know that uh, at some point, you've kind of sucked all the juice out of this particular stimulus, and you need to change. So at that point, you would do a pivot. And then after the pivot, you would go into a new development cycle. So you mentioned uh, time to peak. Time to peak is one of the first things that we try to determine. We give you this development cycle and we kind of let it go uh, until, you know, your strength improves, improves, improves. And then it, at some point it starts to get worse. And we figure out how long were you doing this stimulus uh, before it hit that peak condition, that's that's your time to peak. And we generally measure it in number of exposures. So how many times were you exposed to this mesocycle, or uh, microcycle rather? So I know for myself, it tends to be around six exposures. So if I'm doing one microcycle per week, it will take me about six weeks if I'm doing two microcycles per week, it'll take me about three weeks because, it, you know, 
two exposures a week in three weeks, you've you've done six exposures. Uh, it's not a hard fast rule because the human body isn't isn't composed of hard fast rules, you know. Uh, but it's generally true. So I can I can tell you from a more experiential standpoint, if it takes me six weeks to peak uh, doing one microcycle per week, it'll take me like by the math, it would be three weeks if I'm doing two, uh, two microcycles a week. In reality, it'll be more like four. So um, the numbers aren't like hard, bright lines. They're uh, a little bit fuzzy, but it does give you a general idea. And this, this concept of exposures does seem to be pretty important in terms of figuring out an athlete's time to peak. Now, were you... St- or have heard with based on our guests was um, my, uh, Dr. Mike Isertel talking about volume, the volume landmarks that he and, and Dr. James Hoffman created um, usually pertain to volume or work capacity, in which case, um, you know, the, the RPEs would actually um, get uh, fractionally harder as the mesocycle increases. And perhaps their time to peak would be when they can't repeat a session that involves the same major muscle groups that are no longer recovered. So um, in that sense, you know, they're repeating similar muscle groups per week. Um, They are increasing RPE and they're also increasing volume. So it sounds like you have RP increase that they've described. And this again is volume, this is volume like or hypertrophy and and, and you can even say maybe endurance, but RPE increasing potential sets per rep or uh, total sets increasing as well. Now, if RPE is staying the same and lifters have certain uh, uh, exposures, and that's what you're trying to find out before their peak, um, how are you determining? Because I I imagine that, at least when I've done absolute strength or even relative strength blocks based on RPE, my recovery tends to pretty heavily impact my ability to produce a certain result. So that's to say like with volume training, I can kind of go in, get the work done and accumulate more work per, per micro cycle uh, as, as long as I'm, you know, not um, adding 20% more volume. I can just always seem to add a little bit more reps per set, but with intensity, if I'm not feeling quite well recovered, um, or, or I'm, I'm not really on top of, um, well, all recovery type things like food and sleep. My, my strength might be like way down. Um, how do you know when to figure out these things? Is this all just based on the, the client feedback you're given as for, hey, maybe we found that time to peak or maybe we just need to keep pushing a little bit further? So the f- especially in the first development cycle and for as long as there's a, a question about time to peak, uh, will allow things to go a little bit too far. So imagine that you could look into a crystal ball and, and see that for you, your time to peak is six exposures. In the first development cycle, we don't know that. Uh, so we're going to, we'll do our six exposures. And during that time, everything's looking great. You know, you're still getting stronger and everything. And then we'll do a seventh exposure. And now the performance has degraded a bit. Well, is it truly degraded or is that just kind of a bad day? Well, we don't know. So we'll do an eighth exposure. 
if that has also degraded, then we can be reasonably sure that, okay, this is a trend and, and we don't want to push things ridiculously far. You know, we can, and, and again, this is never about certainty because we're never going to have certainty. This is just about justified belief. So if I have two microcycles of regressed strength, then that's enough justification for me to pivot and move on to a new stimulus. Um, what you'll see sometimes is that, you know, that seventh exposure, uh, yeah, that seventh exposure would be a regression, you know, the first regression. And then the eighth exposure comes back up, you know, okay, well, let's keep going. You know, that so that seventh exposure was a bad day or something. You know, we write that one off and we keep going um, until we find, you know, where the actual limit is. Now, something that you brought up about, about the volume landmarks, um, I, I think it's an important distinction uh, that I'm not increasing the volume from one week to the next. So the procedure uh, that uh, Dr. Israel recommends for finding your, your max recoverable volume is structurally similar to what I'm talking about as far as determining your time to peak. Uh, it's mm -hmm. just that for him, he's increasing the, the volume uh, each microcycle, and I'm not doing that. And that's, I think, a, a pretty big distinction. Um, there's Even in the Blah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that there's still the potential that the volume that you set out in the beginning of uh, of the development cycle is a bit more than the athlete can recover from, and it just takes it a while to accumulate. Or that you know it's fine in the beginning while your strength levels are down, but then as you get stronger throughout the block, it begins to accumulate, and that may be one of the mechanisms that drives. Uh, your time to peak, or at least affects your time to peak. Um, I don't think it's the only thing, you know, because we see time to peak being relatively consistent, regardless of strength gained or not gained, uh, whether, you know, the exposures, frequency uh, changes and things like that. So I think there really is truly something to the exposures idea. I think it's mm -hmm. probably also interacting with the volume that you've got. So if you were to imagine that you're six weeks to peak and then you do uh, a development cycle with 20% more volume, are you really going to be able to improve for the whole six weeks again? Well, probably not. So there's, there's gotta be some sort of interaction between the two. Yeah. That, that was a question I was uh, going to ask was how, uh, you would determine the amount of exposure. Um, so three versus five sets potentially where someone could respond better to higher volumes or lower volumes. Uh, but I guess over time in these development cycles, you would potentially find that out, correct? Yeah, you're going to experiment with, with different things there. Uh, so you'll be able to tease out what's producing the best gain rate over time. Um, mm -hmm. But... What I want, I, I want to see the athletes recovering. I think that, I mean, this this goes back to a thing that that I have just the weakest of evidence for right now. Uh, but 
I think I believe it. I believe it's true. And, and I want to look into it more deeply. Um, we did a project momentum a while ago, which is, uh, just kind of these, uh, somewhat informal interventions that we do, uh, periodically. We have this question, um, related to training and no real answer to it, at least not one that satisfies us. Uh, so we'll ask some people to volunteer to basically test the idea. Uh, we'll collect all the data and aggregate it and see what we can learn. Uh, so it's kind of like a study, but a lot more informal um, mm. and and less controlled, you know, but it's it's ecologically pretty valid for for us as online coaches. So during one of these projects, um, we were looking at the responses of a particular subgroup uh, and we asked them about, you know, whether or not they felt recovered uh, during during the course of the, the training program. And we noticed that uh, the people who did better reported that they felt more recovered. Now, there are some pretty major cognitive biases that can influence that. And that's why I want to go back and, and look at it in a lot more rigorous way. Uh, but I think it's it's at least interesting. And, and that maybe confirms my bias or, or something. I think feeling recovered and being able to turn in great performances in training is important to being able to develop your strength uh, in the, the long term. So it's important to me that my athletes feel recovered at some point, not all the time, of course, but um, that I'm not intentionally beating them down, you know, so I want to set that volume at a level where that sort of recovery is possible so that they can, so they can display, uh, performance improvements. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So in setting your, um, your initial volumes, is this something that you've kind of aggregated for a certain sample size or a certain type of clientele? And then from there, you're just allowing them to build momentum. Uh, are the RPEs starting at like at RPE seven, are they starting a bit higher? Because I know they're maintaining it. So I think this is all new thinking for me. Uh, I'd love to know more about like what that starting point looks like, at least from an RPE standpoint. So like the start of a new development cycle or the start of a new like athlete? Uh, the, the start of a new development cycle and perhaps even just like the uh, a new athlete uh, in general. Yeah. So the, the textbook answer is that the start of a new development cycle is, so the RPE is going to be consistent. So if, using myself as an example, uh, I just started a new development cycle this week. Uh, it includes a single at an 8 RPE. So session one had a single at an 8 RPE, and that will continue uh, every microcycle through the whole development cycle. Um, you know, in, uh, I would say that that's what I've done 99% of the time. Um, we do have one of our coaches, uh, John Garifano, who's been advocating for the use of intro weeks. 
so imagine the same exercises, same uh, same number of sets, same reps, but just turn all the RPEs down by one for that first week. Mm-hmm. Now you're introducing a, a variable, you know, and that's going to affect things. Uh, that's going to affect how much belief you can place in the results of that training block. Um, so you're, you're getting not so pure data out of it, but if that allows the athlete to, to ease into the program a little bit more and they feel more comfortable or less beat up or something, then that may be a trade that you're willing to make. Um, it's just, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just like, what, what kind of trade are you willing to make? Gotcha. So when we're discussing RPE and and most of the people listening, uh, may know that this is just a way that we're gauging, uh, RPE is rate of perceived exertion. And, uh, oftentimes it's associated with uh, repetitions left in reserve. So RPE eight would be about two repetitions in reserve. If we're saying that the RPE is on a scale of one to 10. Um, now we've seen. Uh, especially recently, and uh, uh, there, there's been research to support, I think, what a lot of coaches have been using, uh, which is adding velocity to that discussion. Um, are you, yeah. your clients, having them consider or actually measure uh, a bar speed to factor in velocity as well as RPE and reps in reserve? How do you go about educating new clients? Because it seems like if volumes are staying the same, and RPEs are staying the same, that they'd have to have a really good sense of their of their RPEs, if I'm not mistaken. Um I think I think kind of the normal margins of error on RPE are are just fine. Um Yeah, yeah, I think I think that, that should be alright. Um if you have access to velocity, that can be really useful as well. Um, I've personally used velocity in my training since like 2009 or so, uh, and I find it to be useful. Um, but I've kind of gone through some stages with it. You know, in the beginning, it was novel, and I was just kind of collecting data. And then I really bought into it, and I kind of discounted my subjective RPE for a while and was reliant entirely on velocity. And then I started to realize that there was some aspect of RPE that velocity didn't seem to account for. The velocity was like 80% of what RPE is, uh, but it's not 100%. You know, So where I'm at with it now is I'll do a set. When I rack the bar, I uh, assess my RPE right then. And then I'll look at the velocity. And I'll allow the velocity to shift my assessment a little bit, say half a half an RPE or so. So if I come out from the, under the bar and I say that was an RPE eight, but the velocity was slower than an eight should be, then maybe I'll say eh, eight point five. You know, most of the time they're correlated at least that much. It's it's rare that I have an assessment and the velocity is wildly different. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and one thing that we don't talk about is that there's a an illusion of of precision uh, with 
velocity devices. There's a, an illusion of, of not so much objectivity, but it just kind of gives us the impression that, you know, the, the device said 0.24 meters per second. So it was 0.24 meters per second, but every tool has, mm -hmm. uh, margins for error, you know, and, uh, this would be no different, you know, and, and my understanding of it is that the margins for error are such that, um, you shouldn't discount your own perceptions, you know? So most of my clients don't have access to velocity, uh, data, but if they do, I would have them set up a structure similar to what, what I'm doing with my own training. And it's just that start with your assessment of RPE and then allow the velocity to either confirm or influence that. Mm -hmm. But you can do the same thing with video, you know, if you don't have access to RPE uh, or velocity, rather. Start with your subjective assessment of what happened. Because even if it's not perfect, it's important to cultivate that skill and then watch the video and allow that to influence your assessment of your, of your RPE a little bit, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, don't overvalue it, but you know, kind of take those data points into, into account. So if, <clears throat> excuse me, if, uh, if an athlete, uh, I guess first, do you think an athlete could implement the emergent strategies on their own or that they would uh, need uh, a coach or the coach would make it a lot more beneficial? So I, <laughs> I tend to have some control issues with my own training. <laughs> um, I, I like to tinker with it. It's something that like I've written my own training programs since probably my second week in the gym, nice. uh, which they're is all great. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. They're all fantastic. I wish I could find those old training programs, man. That would be great. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I, I like to do it myself. So I've implemented it in my own training and, and I'm aware of quite a few other people that do the same. Um, I do think it probably you've just got to be willing to tinker with it and, and be willing to search for the right answer, even if it's an answer that you don't necessarily like, which everybody's going to be uh, different degrees of bad at doing that. Okay. Um, and I think that's where a coach can come in handy and a coach's job is so I, I see a coach's job as, as being three things, leadership, relationship, and creativity. Yeah. In the programming sense, I, I see that as mostly inhabiting this creativity part of it. You want to be able to assess the data stream that the athlete's given you and come mm -hmm. up with uh, solutions to the athlete's problems. You know, But there's a lot more to developing an athlete than, than just that, you know. Yeah. So, so then if, uh, if an athlete were to implement this on their own or just anyone in general, where do you think would be the best starting point, um, for them? Uh, and like where maybe extra, uh, I don't know if I'm asking this correctly, but would they just choose, um, some exercises based on their past training and what they think are their strengths and weaknesses. And of course the sport that they've chosen, and then uh, adjusting over time. And as you kind of um, uh, mentioned in the beginning, 
where farther out you may play with it a bit more. And then, of course, as you start to figure out what works, uh, you do that for the competition. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, assume that you're in a situation where you have time mm -hmm. to experiment. Design for yourself a microcycle that is exciting that you look at and you go, oh, that looks fun. I'd like to try that. Or I wonder if that would work, you know, and it can be anything, you know, it can be clusters. It can be a certain exercise or a bar or something like that. And you implement it and you have to track it. You have to keep records of your actual performance and look at what the outcome for that is. So for us, uh, we use the, the training log on the reactive training systems website, um, which is available for anybody who wants to use it for free. Uh, you just go to reactive training systems.com. You log in, you click on apps and you're basically there. And if you log your training at the end of the development cycle, you go to the reporting section and you run a block review and it starts to form that analysis for you. You know, it shows you what the results of that block were, you know, did your SMA1RM go up or down? What was the pattern? You know, you see certain patterns that will emerge. Like some people will improve for two microcycles and then regress for one and then improve for two and then regress for one, you know? And if you see those sorts of patterns, that's important information. Um, you'll see what exercises you did, what rep range they were trained at and so on. Uh, and then you'll do after that development cycle, you do a pivot. Uh, then you do a new development cycle, kind of doing the same type of thing, right? And as you start to stack up these, these block reviews, you'll start to formulate a picture, you know, Hey, every time I train, you know, between four and six reps, my estimated one RM starts going up like crazy when I go heavier than that, I start to feel beat up. The cycles don't go so well. Okay, that's really mm -hmm. important to know. So then you sign up for a competition and you're getting ready for this meet. You know, the, uh, the classic answer is that as you get closer to the competition, you increase in intensity and that's supposed to work. Well, that's great. And it does work mm -hmm. for most people. But if you're not one of those most people, that's really important to know. And I can tell you that last year at the World Championship, um, I, I've been coaching Brett Gibbs for a couple years now and we were getting ready for, for worlds, you know, and, and he's, uh, very competitive. I think he was favored to win the, the 83 kilo class, you know, but he had been favored before and it just kind of didn't work out. And anyway, it, it's, it's the world. So yeah. it's a big deal, you know? And so we're getting ready for this meet where he's, he has a very short time to peak is three weeks. And for him, uh, we wanted to do focused development work for the last three development cycles leading into that competition. You know, so we're doing the planning as we're getting close to closer to the meet. And I'm talking to him saying, look, man, I, I'm seeing this pattern in your data. If we look at what you respond the best to in your deadlift, and it, it's low intensity work, high volumes of low intensity work. So say like 70% for sets of five, multiple sets of five. So each set by itself is pretty easy. It's pretty low RPE. And we just stack up a lot of volume there, you know? So that's what I want to end with. I want to end with the thing that you respond mm -hmm. best to. 
the thing that you respond second best to is like this middle intensity zone, this like 80, 85% intensity zone. So we put that in, in the second to last uh, development cycle, you know, so it started to form this, this kind of reverse uh, linear periodization, whereas we got closer to the meat, the weights actually got lighter, you know, which is really counterintuitive. And to be perfectly honest, it made me really nervous because you're kind of hanging it out there. You've got this guy who's, you know, really talented lifter and you're doing something completely unorthodox. And man, if that blows up in your face, you really look like a fool, but it didn't it actually worked fantastically. His deadlift was great at that meet. And he pulled, he pulled a big PR and, uh, set a bunch of world records, won the, won the competition and, and it worked because we were operating off of data that we could, we could trust. It was his data, you know, it's stuff that we could have a, a reasonable, uh, belief in. Now, do you think Mike that, and this is just a thought that, an athlete such as the one you described perhaps had a history of pushing intensities and, of course, to be at Worlds and to be in the, the, the talk of winning, you, you are certainly strength is not an issue. Uh, could it be that strength was put in to such a degree and at such high intensities that perhaps in finding out that the projected max was going up with sixes was less about, although for that to happen, he'd have to be like improving in that, right? But could it just be a fatigue management strategy that would work for him based on his abilities uh, relative to his genetic potentials and how much time he would need to freshen up his body before competition versus the sixes actually contributing to a stronger squat by way of like the stress and not the fatigue management, if that makes sense. I think I, I think I'm grasping what you're, what you're getting at. So I'll, I'll answer and, and feel free to re- redirect me if I'm, if I'm off on it, but it seems like, <clears throat> Whenever we've done development cycles with higher intensity, the estimated one RM doesn't respond uh, as you would expect. Now, those higher intensity estimated one RMs are adjusted. The volume is adjusted so that it's producing a, a similar degree of difficulty in terms of the difficulty of the workout and the recovery cost of the workout itself. So from a stress standpoint, from a fatigue management standpoint, I don't think that the lower intensity work, the lower intensity block was just easier. And you may even be able to make an argument that it was harder. So I don't think that, that he's just, uh, developing his ability to display the strength, you know, and I mean, if that's the case, you know, it's, it's not, it's not in an obvious way. It's not like you would look at the two programs and say, ah, oh, this one's clearly easier, you know? So it would be a very subtle, uh, difference. And I don't, I wouldn't expect a difference of, of that potential size 
uh, to manifest the kind of outcome that we were able to see. And again, so his time to peak was short, uh, which is three weeks. And you're talking about a one week pivot, you know, so by the time we got to the, to the, the worlds, um, he did a taper, uh, a three week development cycle and a pivot prior to that. So that was five weeks, uh, that he had been handling lighter loads. Now in his particular case, we did a single at an eight RPE followed by 70% rep work. That's an important distinction to make because the single at eight RPE is some high intensity work. And it was enough to let us know where his strength was at. It was enough for him to be able to refine his technique at, at higher intensities and stuff like that. But that is the type of protocol that we had seen good response from uh, in the past. And similar protocols, single at eight RPE followed by 85 or 90% work for the back offs had not produced similar results. Does that get at your question? It does, and it reminds me of, um, have you heard of the rugby study they did with uh, like salivary testosterone using different rep ranges? Yeah, yeah. So it almost reminds me of that study in that you get this really contradictory, or at least like contradictory to training sciences, right? Evidence for these individual circumstances. Um, in, in this one particular study, they used uh, uh, salivary testosterone to figure out, uh, well, they basically had what training response what training response was best and what was worse, uh, or which was worse for an individual. And they even found that some individuals, when trained, if they had their best testosterone response with endurance sets, That's by training that. endurance, they actually got stronger. And when you, uh, if you're in like an ex-phys class now, or if you're a student, or if you're reading your like introductory textbooks, this would seem backwards, but it, it produces results. I think it's fascinating. And, you know, maybe there's just no need to, to postulate about it, although that's, that's kind of cool if it's working. Right, right. Well, and that's kind of where I end up, you know, that why, you know, why is it, why is it this way? And I think if you were to answer that, you would be able to make better predictions. Mm -hmm. But answering the question why is not essential yes. to figuring out that it, it, it does work, or at least it appears to work in such a way that it's useful, <laughs> if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Now, um, one other question, and I don't know if this is an RTS secret. But um, I uh, have found that, well, I'll, I'll say it like this, um, in a piece of literature, actually an ebook that Chad Wesley Smith wrote a long time ago, uh, now it's like 2012, I think, he calculated estimated maxes um, based on like rep increments and reps over a, a projected estimate. So let's say it was an AMRAP and the goal was 10 reps. Well, if someone got 12, you would take that two rep bump or difference rather and multiply it by some rep increment, 2.5 pounds or five pounds. Um, I had found success with something like this for my male athletes, but not so much with for my female athletes at varying rep ranges. So there was, there was so much um, variance that I discovered 
between genders and rep ranges. And do you, does your guys' calculator factor in these different things, or is it one straight equation? The way we do it, and and this is all kind of built into to our training log app. Which I've um, an account in the time we've been talking because it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. The, it, it, there's a lot to there's a lot to play with there, and and partly because it's really geared toward people that want to be kind of power users. Uh, because I built it, and that's kind of who I am. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't. I shouldn't say I built it. I designed it, and uh, uh, you know, our our developers built it. Um, uh, Anyway, sorry, that's really neither here nor there. But the way that we calculate estimated one rep, one rep max is we're looking at uh, the reps you did and the RPE that you gave it, and that correlates to a percentage. You know, if you if you had a, a rep and RPE percentage chart, that's what it would be. Now, the way that it's set up, there's a default uh, chart that's that's just there by default and uh it's the same for everybody it seems to be mostly right for most people most of the time you know um if you would like to create a custom chart you can do that and you can plug it into the system uh, you can assign it to different exercises and then the system will use that chart automatically so if you notice that uh the estimated one rms that it's given you uh, for the bench press are inflated you know, you can look at your data, uh, you can figure out which parts are inflated and make make uh, some adjustments and uh, save that as an RPE chart and the system will use that chart for you for the, for the future. You know, and you could do that for everything uh, for a given athlete if, if you wanted to. Gotcha. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask one more thing about that. So, you know, we, we mentioned um, different implements too, right? You want to create, like, let's say I want to do a safety squat bar cycle uh, and see if that can help my back squat but with a, like a high bar traditional tri- high bar uh, posture traditional bar um, mm-hmm. would you have me find a working max on that or would you say hey you know find your RPE progress the safety squat bar and then we'll just see what happens to your estimated max when you check back in on the intended goal, which would be the regular high bar posture, standard bar squat. So that's actually an important, important point. And this goes back to designing development cycles and designing your, um, designing your uh, uh, microcycle that you're going to repeat. So in general, uh, as long as time is going to permit it. You want to have exercises from basically all classification categories in each microcycle uh, that you're doing. So, uh, in the Bondarchuk system, there's four uh, classification exercise uh, categories. Uh, I kind of dropped the general category of uh, not dropped it, but I, I predominantly talk about the the first three. The first one is competition exercises, and those are relatively self-explanatory. The second one 
I call assistance exercises. Uh, these are things that are structurally very similar to the competition exercise, but it may have like one or two small tweaks to give it a certain emphasis. So like you mentioned, safety bar squats, um, also things like pause squats or pin squats. Um, they're still squats. Um, there's just like some small adjustment. And those are trained relatively heavy for the most part, you know, say three to five reps most of the time. But that can vary a lot depending on what strategy you're implementing. And then the third category is supplemental exercises. These are not similar uh, to the, the competition movement, but they involve the same muscles and to some extent, same energy systems. So think of it like if we're talking about squatting, these are things like lunges or leg presses or things of that nature. Um, if we're talking about bench pressing, we're looking at overhead press, uh, dumbbell bench and things like that, right? They're, they're quite different. Uh, usually trained for higher reps, have more of a, of a muscle building kind of focus generally. So you'll want to include something from, from each of those categories in your development cycle. So when you're, say you want to test out the idea of, of safety bar squats, well, you, you have competition squats in your program, but then you also have safety bar squats and you also have something for the supplemental category. And now you've finished your development cycle and you think, well, how can you tell if you improved because of the safety bar work, or if you improved because of any of the other things you were doing. That goes back to certainty. We can never be certain. And, and this is, is more of an epistemological fact. There's no way that you can conduct the training so that you could be certain. People talk about like uh, 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 this mythological kind of training cycle where you hold all the, the same, all the variables constant, except for one, and you only tweak one variable at a time, and that's that way you know what's doing what. Even that's not true because you your training history is different for every development cycle that you go into. Uh, the situation that you find yourself in is different. So you're not changing just one variable. Fundamentally, you're changing more than one variable. So the way that you have to come at it is from an increasing level of certainty. If you do one training block with safety bar squat and your squat goes up, that doesn't mean a whole lot. That means, huh, that's interesting. Maybe we should look at that a little closer. You know, now if you've done five development cycles over the last two years and every time you do it uh, with a safety squat bar, uh, your squat goes up, then that's a lot more robust information. That's something that you have a much stronger justified belief in. You know, so you're developing a picture. Um, I don't know if you guys, since we're going to nerd out over this, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the double slit experiment in, in physics. Oh, um, um, for uh, related to optics, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to, uh, I'll skip the, the physics part of it, but it's interesting if to, to look it up, maybe see a, a YouTube video of it or something. That's but great. the idea is that there's, two slits and that uh, a single photon is fired through uh, these slits one at a time and that a pattern begins to emerge on the screen on the other side of these two slits. Now, if you just fire one photon or two photons through there, you have no idea what the pattern is going to look like because it's random, you know, but the more photons you fire through there, the more clearly you can see the pattern emerge. And it's something similar 
with emerging strategies or, or basically any sort of way that you're going to try to paint a picture of athlete response, you're going to be doing the same type of thing. It's, it's with repeated trials that you can gain more and more certainty over what's actually doing the work. Yeah. And um, we had Max Ada on not long ago. And although he didn't discuss this in our particular podcast, I've heard him discuss this about his time spent with Boris uh, Boroshenko. Uh, and I, I know you've also had a chance to, to perhaps learn from him. I don't know if you were at, at all coached by him. Um, but Max said that the, one of the biggest things he learned from Boris was the importance in repeating training cycles. Uh, and for this very reason, right? Uh, just to become a little bit more confident with your educated guests. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had a really fun conversation with Max about this type of topic and, you know, how he does it because I mean, I'm the only one in powerlifting that I know of that talks about it in these terms, but I can't think that I'm the only one that's trying to tackle this problem or, or even that sees the problem. I know that other people have, have wrestled with this, you know, so it caused me some kind of heartache in the beginning. So I was seeking out smart people to talk to, you know, and I talked to, to Max, I talked to Jacob Sipkin, I talked to Eric Helms and Greg Knuckles and, and, uh, uh, Bryce Lewis and, you know, tried to like, look guys, this is how I see that I'm solving the problem and I don't really see other ways to do it. So I know that you guys probably see the same problems and have wrestled with it in some way. So what am I not seeing? You know, what are my blind spots, you know, and how are other people addressing these sorts of things? So, um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we've had a couple of those on on my podcast as well, but you know, just yeah, it's I think it's important to to look at things in that way, you know, that not to get married to your own ideas too quickly, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely, because I, I think we're so quick to, as you mentioned prior, uh, find something or not. Well, I think I should say maybe a beginner to intermediate athletes with a lot of enthusiasm and uh, a lot of leisure time on Instagram are quick to find these sometimes seemingly bizarre exercises and attribute a mesocycle success in their competition list to this bizarre thing they're doing. Uh, and outside of just like, yeah, novel, novel exercises could, could do you good. Um, and, and it's just variety is fun. It's just, really helpful to know why what you're doing is is working right so it sounds like you've created a system to try to best answer that and that in doing so it's flexible for the individual to begin to explore this in their feedback with their coach to get creative to track and to evolve over time i I really really like that yeah, that seems that seems true to me. You know, a couple of things that you said there that I think are, are worth highlighting as well. Um, the idea that doing something different seems like it can be a sim- stimulus in itself. And mm-hmm. I don't really understand why that would be other than 
it, maybe it's got something to do with sensory perception or something, you know, that, uh, think of it like you go into a loud factory, you know, and, and when you first walk in, all the machine noise is very loud. Uh, but then if you spend some time in there, it gradually kind of fades away into the background. You don't notice it so much. But now if one of the machines suddenly changes pitch, then you notice it again. You know, so maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's a, a sensory thing. Uh, maybe it's an enthusiasm thing. But I think the variation can be something like a stimulus in itself. Uh, and if it does, if it is just simply because it, it makes people more enthusiastic about their program, then hey, that's worth it. <laughs> that's worth it to me. You know, Is you guys have um, any athletes or general population who do not like the aspect of things repeating themselves like this and are instead like looking for variety for the sake of it, as you just mentioned, where you have to prevent them from just being distracted by what perhaps, as you mentioned, could just be new sensory information and, and is exciting? I I don't have any general population that fit that category. Most well, first of all, selection bias being what it is, most people that I work with are competitive. Uh, even the people that aren't um, still train as if they are. But I've had a few people who are competitive who have told me that they didn't want to repeat the same microcycle over and over. I, you know, in the beginning, I thought that was going to be a big problem, uh, that people were going to get bored and, and not want to do it. Uh, it hasn't been a, a problem hardly at all. And I think for the most part, powerlifters are content to do the same thing over and over. If the weights are getting heavier and they're getting stronger, like that's, that's enough, uh, to keep their attention. And then you see that when they get to the end of that development cycle, uh, you know, and they've kind of exhausted that stimulus, they get bored with it very quickly. Like things are great. Things are great. Things are great. Okay. I'm done. <laughs> you know? Um, and, and I've kind of used that as a little bit of an indicator. I mean, it's not everything, uh, but you know, if you've got a, a pretty reliable time to peak and you know, somebody's getting bored with a training cycle outside of that, then, you know, that's important to consider as well. You know, Cool. And the, you know, the last question I have to do on be respectful of your time is that um, or the question is, have you learned any, anything in the past few years that you have been able to implement into the emerging strategies that you feel has helped make it better? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're always messing around with different concepts and different ideas. Uh, a lot of it over the last few years, I would say, is centered around tactical development. So um, let's see. The single at eight RPE thing has kind of become a meme a little bit. Uh, but I mean, that, and that's actually been more than a few years ago that we started doing that. Um, but, you know, whether that's, uh, let's see, last couple years, if I just kind of stick to that paradigm, I would say having pivot blocks where you're allowing strength to go down a little bit. Like part, one of the goals of the pivot block is to 
maintain your strength, but maintain it while balancing it with all the other goals of the pivot block. So you have to understand that, yeah, we're trying to maintain some strength, but that just means that we're trying not to let strength free fall while we're in this pivot block. Um, Taking some load off the spine is probably a good thing. Doing some things that are geared more toward your longevity in the sport is probably a good thing. Uh, taking that stuff as seriously as you can, I think, has has helped improve our outcomes. Uh, yeah, and I think that for this, we work with a lot of weightlifters, and for our weightlifters who are training perhaps, you know, biannually on a national level, uh, perhaps even in, in pursuit of, of making um, world teams or, or international teams, like even for those high level goals to just have what, if I'm using this terminology as being a pivot block where, you know, we might really go outside of what they, they normally do rep range wise. Uh, and they might even just like cut a training day of the week and involve a different type of exercise. Like they might swim or they might go climbing. I think not only is that good for psychological purposes, but just for a longevity standpoint, because it seems as though just like the, the anabolic response of doing the same thing all the time would, and we know this, it diminishes, right? So it, I, I, I think that I, I would agree just to my own observations that having these times of just thinking outside the box and doing things that are fun and different is very, very, very important for, for longevity. Yeah. Just uh, one more anecdote on that point, if you don't mind. Um, I had a, a lifter who was competitive at the world level, um, training for, we were getting ready for the world championships. Uh, the world championships were in November. Uh, he had a really long time to peak. It was seven weeks with a two-week pivot. So uh, he was one of these that our last two development cycles uh, were going to take, you know, four months, you know. So uh, when we were outside of that, you know, he'd been training with me for a long time and we'd been doing a lot of meets and uh, it just starts to wear on you after a while. So we said, you know, let's take, a, let's take it easy. We're going to do a hypertrophy block take a lot of load off. We're going to do, we're going to stop the competition exercises and allow you some time to heal up. We're going to maintain your muscle mass and, and whatnot. So it did a full, full development cycle like that, full seven weeks, uh, and a two week pivot. And my thought was, you know, this first development cycle is going to be almost entirely getting back to baseline. And then he'll have the last development cycle to make some improvements. And then we'll take it to the competition and it'll be what it is. But it really surprised me that within a couple weeks of returning to, to more serious powerlifter style training after this extended hypertrophy period, uh, he was back to sport form. You know, he was back to pushing up big weights and he actually had a fantastic response. And that's another layer to this, you know, that as you start to develop a picture of what the athlete responds to, then you can start to you can start to piece together uh, sequences of blocks that work well together, and that's kind of where the emerging in emerging strategies comes from. The long term plan begins to emerge 
from the short term. And in his case, you know, that I thought that first development cycle would be just kind of getting things back up and running again. He really took off. And since then, I've, I've found that that's, I don't know if I would say it's more the rule than the exception, but it's definitely not uncommon at all to see that, that type of thing happen. So taking some time away from hardcore training is definitely not, it's not even right to look at it as a step back. I don't think. Yeah. I've heard Greg, it was either Greg or Chad express like the same exact thing in their training. It was Chad. It was Chad. He said one of his biggest mistakes was after competitions, going back into training instead of taking uh, two to three months of more relaxed training and then diving back in. And he always um, talked about the uh, international weightlifters who will take like three months off after the Olympic and just do like swimming and basketball and then start training again. That's you you have some well uh the last question i had and uh, i don't want to uh maybe dive too back <laughs> into the more technical business if you were to apply these emerging strategies or, or this idea to other sports um maybe how it would change because it's obviously you mean like weightlifting or... well yeah and you you're thinking about it within the context of powerlifting and i know that you said in the beginning the how you know it worked would be if the estimated one RM went up, but in other sports that may that metric is not as apparent, or there is the one RM isn't the goal. Uh, but I imagine that that's the biggest change would be just finding what metric you would um, use to uh, see if the development block worked. Yeah, yeah. So I've coached. I've coached a couple strongmen, uh, and one, really only one since doing most of the emerging strategy stuff. And it is difficult because, I mean, I think coming up with the concept of how it would work is not terribly hard, you know? So if, if he's doing, uh, farmer's walks for 20 meters and, uh, you know, he can, go faster with the same weight, then that's a performance improvement. You know, we can track that. Um, There are a lot more performance metrics to worry about. Uh, But I think one of the biggest difficulties with crossing over is just having the requisite variety of, of experience to know what's going to create some effects, you know? So, since my experience is so deep in powerlifting, I can, I I see somebody show a a chest ball pattern in their squat. I know that these types of exercises usually address that. And now it's more of a matter of figuring out which one is best, which one, you know, is this athlete responding to it? You know, and if, if no, then we have some, you know, backup plans that we can go to from there, you know? you don't have that so much when you cross over between sports, you know, so I need a lot more help from the athlete in terms of figuring some of that stuff out, technical knowledge. And and I think the, like a self-organized technique discussion is probably a, a whole other discussion by itself, you know, but I mean, that stuff makes it, you can definitely do it. And I think that 
as a way of organizing training, again, as I keep, you know, you know, beating this drum of justified belief, it's a good way of organizing training for that, you know, as far as, you know, the nuts and bolts uh, and making the system work, I think there's definitely some work to be done there. Yeah. And, and the, you know, one, one thing that I was thinking of, you know, with, with weightlifting, it's, it's, it's a little bit harder because you can't know if the snatch balance makes for a better, like you just, you, you, you go by feel, right? You could maybe run something similar. Well, and RPE is it's just not that, as... Well, well, technique makes yeah. everything, the, the, the level of precision technique makes things a bit harder. But one thing, and, and I like how that RPE8 single has become like a meme, because I do think, right? That's like, you know, like 90, 92%, right? Yeah. Like opening weight. Yeah, I, I feel like, so I, I know, like I'm not... I, I coach national national level weightlifters. I am not a national level weightlifter myself. I don't know if this is based on my own like technical limitations, but I feel like those lifters, or at least a few lifters that I can think of off the top of my head, would benefit from being able, like on any given day, to hit. to be able to do that RP8 single, despite the technical challenges to the sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I feel psychologically that would just really create a confident lifter going into competition who can just always hit their openers but i don't quite program for that at the moment because you you know and and uh, as you've spoken with on max on, i know when they had you on on their podcast like so much of what weightlifters do is like this it's hard to ascribe an rpe to it because it's uh, technical work but i still think that having that that single ability uh, which a powerlifter could hit any given day of the week, right? And and doesn't come at a high fatigue cost would be really helpful. Yeah, I don't know what that would look like for for a weightlifter, to be honest. Like, and it's and I mean that genuinely. Like, I just don't know because I don't have the experience with it. But if you could, maybe it's maybe there's some type of a single that you can hit, and you know you develop a sense of you know I I could put five more kilos on today i could put 10 more kilos on today or something like that maybe i don't know if that's a sense that you can develop with enough certainty that it would matter uh what's that like uh kilos in reserve right yeah yeah i mean i mean if you could that would be really useful oh yeah Yeah. but you know i mean even without that that you know, some, I guess you could do like the, you know, your, uh, uh, daily max, uh, benchmark, you know, and that's, that's, so the single at eight RPE, it's really a a benchmarking set, you know, and since, since that time we've used lots of different benchmarking sets, you know, it might be five reps at a nine RPE or, you know, a a 70% AMRAP or, any number of things, you know? So if you're a weightlifter and let's say that you reject the, the notion that RPE can be used with the required degree of accuracy for weightlifting, uh, then maybe, you know, once a week you go to, uh, you go to a max. Um, of course the entire system would have to be built around that type of implicit assumption, you know, but that is one of the, 
one of the limitations. Um, so this type of emerging strategies type of thing comes from uh, throws, you know, hammer throw and shot put. Uh, those are also sports where it's easy to gauge performance with a high degree of frequency. You know, every session you can measure how far you threw. You know, in powerlifting, you yeah. can get a weekly performance check. You know, if you're doing a sport, let's say you're wrestling, you know, well, how do you apply something like this to that? You know, and and maybe weightlifting is is harder uh, to get that um, that type of frequent performance check, which is going to make the whole thing a lot harder to implement. Yeah. I was even thinking of like CrossFit too, where you don't even know what you may be, what your performance will be. You could do it because you have no, like your competition specifics are are changing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could do it versus like relative to what the weekend. Yeah. Or you could just, it might be a pattern. choose time you, to you might run yeah. an RTS uh, block of strength if they're weak. Yeah. Well, so this is a problem I've talked with uh, Jacob Sipkin about a couple times, and it's like this ongoing thing: uh, classification problems. You know, yeah. If, if you could classify the movements, then you could figure out a way to to generalize it. You know, maybe it's maybe you know. Yeah, you've got to be ready to do uh, a squat and a front squat and a deadlift and, you know, all these max strength things. But if that can be generalized by your your squat max, then maybe that's good enough. Uh, but there's all these different things. And classification systems are arbitrary. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not useful. Mm-hmm. But it makes the problem, it's definitely a difficult problem to, to wrap your whole head around, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, you know, I, I like I said, you know, thirty minutes ago, I said I wanted to be respectful of your time, but it's not- <laughs> no worries, man. I I get rolling on some of these topics, and I can't stop either. Oh so yeah, no worries. <laughs> Talk about this uh, uh, so much longer. Um, you know what we're going to definitely do is we're going to link. And, you know, for if you've been listening and, and, and you know you you've learned some things as an athlete, but you know you're not really you're not a coach or in Wanting to geek out on programming, this video may not be for you. But if you want to really dive into the nuts and bolts of emerging systems, then we'll, uh, well, uh, emerging strategies. So sorry, Mike. We'll definitely um, uh, link uh, the YouTube video. Um, uh, link how to find uh, more out about uh, RTS and about Mike. And like any other things that that you have going on that, that would be helpful for our audience to know about or, or any other thoughts or directions that you're heading in with experimentation or just being creative with your athletes? Um, gosh, I mean, there's always, always new stuff to be worked on. You know, we typically make most announcements type things or disseminate information uh, via the reactive training systems website. Uh, which is where you can find that training log I mentioned earlier. And then also on our, on our YouTube channel. Um, I'm personally pretty active on Instagram as well, but you know, if you're more interested in learning things, then probably the YouTube channel is best. Yeah. I've been uh, watching your um, trials with the uh, transformer bar. Is that what it's called? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's been pretty funny. (laughs) 
yeah my own training is a bit of a mess these days but that's that's all right i've i've kind of so i'm not squatting and deadlifting uh competitively right now so i've like find some things that i can do that are fun that i can i can push uh so i've settled on front squats um so i'll I'll be doing these weird movements you know like paused front squats or, or front squats from pins and people ask me a lot of times like why are you doing this like what does this mean to your your competition back squat and I'm, nothing <laughs> you know that is not the focus right now <laughs> you know awesome well thanks for coming on yeah mike yeah yeah enjoyed it thanks guys we'll we'll link it all below and we hope you have a great rest of your day